Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm excited about this episode, Chris. Are you? I'm very excited about this episode. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. I've even talked about it publicly right here on the podcast while you were on spring break and in other forums. And I've never had so long to think about one ap- one episode because, I, as you said, I've been gone for a couple of weeks and you recorded some great episodes with Shiloh that I'm excited to have our listeners listen to. But for us, this is one that we've been excited about because it's about doubt. Yeah. And doubt is this difficult subject, and we like difficult subjects, but this one in particular is is one that I think largely is misunderstood, and I'm not claiming any personal awesome revelation about it, but I think we're going to have some great ideas to discuss and maybe some new ways of thinking about doubt that will help people wrestle with and manage their doubts into something that uh, can help them transform, become more faithful and move further along that uh, covenant path towards the ultimate goal of realizing their divine parentage, potential, and inheritance. That's exciting. Was that was that too much? <laughs> no, that's what it is, isn't it? You know, you and I, we have had such, we've gotten so much out of our doubt. We've gotten a lot of mileage out of our doubt. It's a very positive thing to us. Let's put it in other terms, questions, good questions. Good questions can do so much for us. I personally am predisposed to ask questions, and that's probably why I ended up going for training and asking questions. I'm now a philosopher. I was trained in asking questions, and good questions can just do so much for us. They've done a lot for me. Yeah, me too. I don't think you get to progress intellectually, spiritually, mentally, whatever, unless you've learned to ask and receive answers to the right questions, to big questions, ones that really matter and that puzzle you. And you're not afraid to ask. You have to fearlessly attack those questions. And so I'm excited about this. It's going to be great. Yeah, maybe maybe we should define what we mean by doubt. What, let's, what's the relationship, would you say, Riley, between faith and doubt? Because I think... See, and that's... That's exactly where I want this to go. Keep going. Yeah, because I think people have the wrong idea when it comes to the relationship between doubt and faith. Doubt is often seen as the opposite of faith, whereas I think that doubt and faith are two sides of the same coin. That if you don't have doubt, you don't have faith. You have fundamentalism. You have certainty, where perhaps you shouldn't. And, you know, it's not that there isn't a such a thing as knowledge. If you don't have doubt, you have knowledge. You don't have faith, right? Or you, or you lack completely. You might, you might lack all knowledge. If, if, you don't have, if you don't have doubt, 
it, it might be, or faith or doubt, it might be because you lack completely the basis for having faith or doubt, which is knowledge. Yeah. So, so if you have knowledge, you don't need faith. And this is scriptural, right? If you, if you have knowledge, you don't need faith. Faith is for when you don't have knowledge. You're seeking knowledge. You're seeking revelation. You need faith, i.e. you need doubt. Doubt and faith go hand in hand. This is maybe a little bit different, a different way to think about it than, than what most people probably, than, than the way most people probably think about it, right? Because I think in the modern sense within the church, we've defined faith and doubt by different conference talks given or, you know, popular definitions of this. And, and I think we even might get caught up in this because we're, we're a, a approaching doubt from this perspective of growth. But is there a place for doubt that is harmful as well? Like, is there a type of doubt that can be harmful? Yeah, maybe we should bring in, I think the most famous talk on the subject has to be the one where we get the idea of doubting your doubts. Yeah. As, as from uh, President Uchtdorf, right? Yeah. So let's talk about that. So the, the context of that quote is more than just doubt your doubts, right? There's this conditional statement that goes right after that that says, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. But ah. it sets it up as this dichotomy between doubt and faith, as if they're complete opposites, right? And as you mentioned earlier, doubt and faith don't necessarily have to be opposites. So let's explore this, this phrase from Elder Uchtdorf that I think can be confusing, but also maybe secretly genius. I think it is. Okay, so how do we add color and context to this quote of faith and doubt, of, of doubting your doubts before you doubt your faith? So first of all, I think we need to use the whole phrase. Not just doubting your doubts, but doubting your doubts before you doubt your faith. That is a little more nuanced, isn't it? But it still does set up a, a dichotomy that, that I think is a false dichotomy between faith and doubt, which isn't to say that, that any falsehood has been uttered necessarily, but that, well, let's, let's put it this way. I've noticed as a philosopher that not all, if any, of the, uh, um, the conference talks that you get are philosophical in nature, right? And they may be theological sometimes, but they're not necessarily philosophical, and there's not the rigor in terms of terminology usage that a philosopher has when giving these talks, because that's not the, the level of rhetoric at which they're aimed. So I think we can go into this a little bit and explore this and maybe in some sense appear to be contradicting what is said, but on the other, I know that you and I already, we can just say up front that we actually agree with this idea, right? Very much so. Yeah, but I think it requires a little bit of subtle nuance, right, to get to that point where, at least for me, where I agree with this statement. Right. On the, fa on the face of it, again, you have this, what looks like a false dichotomy. But here's the question. Why don't we do it this way? Let's doubt that we understand what's really going on with this quote. And let's ask a question. Let's put this into practice right here. Can you make doubt a dogma? Yeah, you certainly can. If you adopt doubt as a paradigm for understanding and intellectual engagement, I think what you're doing is you're setting yourself up on your ramiumptum or, you know, your, your place of authority and you're saying, I know better than the people who have faith or spiritual understanding. So I think this is the, the issue that's being addressed by President Uchtdorf, don't you? I do. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think essentially what he's saying is before you write off the idea of faith, you ought to examine your approach to doubt. I'm reminded of, uh, I, I heard Rob Bell talking about someone having said that there is no God. And Rob Bell's response, Rob Bell is a, well, let's see, he was a one of these mega church pastors who's now a pastor at large. He actually uh, left his church voluntarily after a controversy over, over a book he wrote on, on hell, of all things, called Love Wins. And and he said he's done some really, really good work. But he says, somebody said, there is no God. And Rob Bell says, really? We, we know this? <laughs> we know this? There's no God? We know this? How can we know that? Yeah, it comes from the same place of certainty that a lot of cynical doubters criticize. Yeah. The same, the same cynicism that this person who says there is no God has adopted as their paradigm, they would criticize in someone who has faith in God. And who says there is a God when perhaps we can't know that either. Right, in, right, right. In right. any scientific way, right? We can't see, hear, taste, touch, smell God. And that's what the guy who says we know there's no God is saying. Because no one has seen, smelled, tasted, touched God, right? And yet, there's so much more to the universe. There's so much more to what's going on than what we can, than what we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, right? Yeah, but between those two extremes, of the extreme cynic or skeptic and the extreme confident fundamentalist who just knows everything— Doubt lives in that space, and faith live in that space to uh, in that space together, right? So they're not necessarily opposites. They're living in the same space on a spectrum with each other, sometimes interacting with each other to create new understanding. Yeah. So really, those on uh, on the fundamentalist side of uh, of knowing everything and having no doubts, and we have the only uh, right way of thinking about it. You know, they're on the same page as those who say there is nothing that you can know about any such thing. So do we have any examples where doubt has led to faith or, or has transitioned into a higher understanding, higher, higher um, level of understanding? Well, again, for me, doubt and faith are really two sides of the same coin. So I can think of, I'll put it this way, and this is something that we've covered in a, in a previous episode, the idea of having a crisis of meaning as opposed to a crisis of faith, there are those who are having crises of faith, they believe, when really they're having crises of meaning. And it's because they have doubts. It's because they have questions. They, Let's say there's a, a way of understanding that they have according to what they've been taught or what they've learned or how they've understood what they've been taught and learned it. And then they have doubts about that understanding. And what happens then is that that, that becomes a crisis because this thing that I thought was true, turns out maybe it's not true. I have doubts about it. I have questions about it. But really what's going on is, again, it's not the thing itself. It's your understanding of it. And this is why I say it's a crisis of meaning. What if the thing just doesn't mean what you thought it meant? Because either it was taught to you in the wrong way, or you understood it and learned it in the wrong way. But it's still a thing. And I know this is abstract. Do you have a a more concrete example? No, I think what you're getting at, and I think this is great, is the difference between expressing a doubt or pursuing a doubt 
but not becoming a doubter. Like there's no need to adopt that identity by just pursuing the intellectual or spiritual exercise of exploring where that doubt takes you. And I think when you explore, that's when you come to those new understandings, that nuance that might exist in a space out there that you haven't yet made it to, but it's there. And so moving towards that space is part of the function of doubt. It's moving you out of a space of full understanding, or at least what you thought was perfect knowledge, into a space of uncertainty so that you can learn more. Right, and that's key. So what we're talking about here is being able to progress spiritually actually requires doubt. So if I have this thing that I'm so sure about, that I don't have any questions, I'm sitting still and not moving, right? I'm not progressing in any sense. And, and you know, who knows? Perhaps there's something where, I don't know, is there? Can there be something where we really know all there is to know? Maybe not. How would you know I'm not you so know? I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> right? How would you know? You still have to, you have to do the work, meaning you have to exercise the faith or the doubt to ask the questions to find out. And so if you have this thing and you have an understanding of it, and you're willing to question that understanding of it, whether the doubt occurs to you uh, um, unintentionally or whether you actually intend to use skepticism as a, uh, to use method, methodological doubt, let's say, as a way of progressing spiritually, you can just take it and look at it and you can ask yourself, do I fully understand this? Is my understanding of this thing all that it can be? Is there more? That question should sound familiar. Is there more? I can remember, what's his name, Riley? Elder Richard G. Scott. I can remember Elder Richard G. Scott's talks. They were some of my favorites in conference. And he would talk about praying and asking questions and taking notes and always asking that question, is there more? That's such an important question. Yeah, the reason why I like that a lot is because we, it acknowledges that there's stages of understanding. Stages of faith, even to coin to to adopt an already coined term, and the stages of faith model helps us to understand that something can be true for us in an early stage that we then start to doubt later, but really, it might still be true in a new way of understanding. And again, that's that idea of of inducing investigation so that we can arrive at an understanding that includes subtlety and nuance. So let me give an example. The phrase, the church is true. This is something that kids from the pulpit will say in every testimony. If you don't hear a kid say the church is true, then they haven't been attending primary or whatever, because this is something that they are going to adopt early on, is this idea and this expression, the church is true. And then something comes along in their teen or 20s or whatever that totally rocks their boat. And they're like, wow, can the church still be true despite this, whatever this, you know, critical historical piece of information is? And, and they work through that, that cycle of, of doubting and, and wrestling with the Lord as Jacob did. And they figure out that, hey, the this can still be true because it's not as I understood it before. It's maybe here's another way to understand it. And so part of it is just working through different stages of understanding that things can be true in stage one. They can be true in stage four or 10 or 50 in just new ways. And so we're always trying to augment and um, 
make new our understanding of the ways in which God interacts with us. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because we're we ask a lot, we naturally ask a lot of questions when we're children. And when I was listening to you just now, it reminded me of when it comes to drawing. Most of us stop drawing when we're kids, and if you ask an adult who stopped drawing when when she was a kid to draw something, she'll actually draw the same way she did when she was a kid now as an adult. And so it's the same thing. If we put aside asking all those questions and we just accepted whatever our, our, our level of understanding was when we were a child and we brought that all the way forward into our adult life, we're going to see that thing in that same way. So we actually have to bring back the, the questions and, and put that back into practice. What a fantastic analogy. I love that. I love that. Because, you know, how many times have you heard adults get up at the same pulpit that the kid just did and basically give the exact same testimony? And it's not that it's insincere. It's that they haven't investigated further or, you know, really pushed themselves spiritually to gain further light and knowledge. They're stuck with the old light and knowledge. And maybe that's great for them when they're kids. Maybe it's great for them now. I'm not here to judge. All I'm saying is we've heard the same thing from adults that we hear from kids. They're drawing the same pictures. Yeah, and and, it, and they could have a, a new and, and higher level of understanding and still say the same thing, right? But do they? We don't know, right? So we know where we are. And, that's, and, and I know that for me personally, I want to know more. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I want to know more. That, there's a lot to that, right? Um, that's what has me read a book every day. Right? It's just this insatiable desire for knowledge. And it's a basic human thing, right? Curiosity is is a human trait. Right? All, all humans are curious. Some of us maybe more than others. So as far as we've gone now, I think our understanding is that faith is not the opposite of doubt and vice versa. So what is the opposite of doubt? Well, I would say certainty. What what does certainty lead us to, if anything? So you know, when it comes to when it comes to certainty, looked at at least from a negative perspective, and I think it can lead to very negative ideas and behaviors, because those who are certain, especially when they're certain about what God thinks, and so whatever negative ideas they have. God is on their side, and so they end up creating a God in their own image, and that God is on their side, and they can do very destructive things with that, very negative things. I personally spent a couple of years working on a master's, or in a master's in terrorism studies, and this is what it's all about, right? It's not that all uh, terrorists uh, I studied were religious terrorists, they're atheist terrorists too, but they look a lot alike in their certainty about their ideas. They don't have a lot of questions. Fundamentalists don't have questions. They have answers. And they have the answers. And that can be a big problem for those around them who don't agree with their answers. And it's always a problem for them because they really are zealous about pushing their answers on other people. Yeah, I asked what certainty in fundamentalism would lead to. And it's, it's kind of a silly question because honestly, it leads to nothing. There's no growth in that mindset. It's very fixed. There is nothing more for me to learn. I have the answers, as you said. I don't have questions. I have answers. You come to me, I will give you the answers. So let's talk about doubt some more. It might be the avenue to renewed faith, deeper faith, greater understanding. 
That's what Leonard Arrington said. This is a guy who was the, the church historian for a good amount of time. And he had his own doubts and uncertainties. And some, sometimes he'd table those, and other times he would express them. But for the most part, he, he continued investigating, which made him such a fantastic scholar and historian, was he was willing to investigate. And a lot of his work has led to where we're at now with the church in a lot of new revelations and, and widening of the audience for the historical truth that is being spread now through the Joseph Smith Papers Project and elsewhere. Can we talk about tabling our doubts? That's another one I think we should talk about in the same way as doubting our doubts. There, there, there's a place for, for tabling our doubts, right? Yeah, I think to an extent. But we can only go so far with that, right? I know that for a lot of people, they've put their doubts on the shelf and they've put their doubts on the shelf and they've put their doubts on the shelf. And at some point, the shelf doesn't hold anymore. So there's, again, just like there's doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Is that what the, is that how the quote mm -hmm. goes? There's, there's, there's a possibility also for putting your doubts on the shelf, but at some point they have to be dealt with. You have to actually, but, but of course this is maybe a little bit different way of thinking about doubt than the way we're talking about it. Yeah. I think when we're tabling these things though, we're really, we're not tabling the huge questions. Cause if we are, those will just grow like a dragon in a cave, right? You, you've got to, you've got to tackle those head on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of someone who, who has uh, doubts, you know, these little questions, as you say, the smaller questions, and they, they table them, and, and there's a place for that. You can wait, you can receive more knowledge, more revelation, however the knowledge comes, uh, through study, through faith, through prayer, and get some of those questions answered. Uh, we, we have to be patient too, right? We don't, we're not going to know everything all at once. And I think, you know, there's, there's a sense in which the idea of, the, of having something like the internet where you can just Google stuff gives us this false expectation that we can actually have knowledge just because we have information. Knowledge and information are not the same thing. And knowledge implies an understanding of the information. And so one of the things that I heard, at least what I got out of the talk that says doubt your doubts is this idea that just because you have information doesn't mean you have understanding, right? that there may be that you should doubt your understanding of the information. Is that something you got out of that talk? Yeah, for sure. And that's a great segue because what it brings to my mind is <laughs> I'm going to go Don Henley on you. You know, the lyric that says in, in the song, the heart of the matter, he says, the more I know, the less I understand all the things I thought I knew I'm learning again. What do you think about that quote? Sounds a lot like, I, you know, I don't know the I don't know the song, but I, it sounds a lot like Socrates to me. Well, give us the Socrates version. Well, Socrates says that all he knows is that he doesn't know anything. Now, here's someone who's who's really invested a lot of time and energy into into knowing, and he finds that he's a lot less certain about things than those people around him who haven't invested the same amount of time and energy into knowing. And the whole project of Socrates, or at least as he shows up in the dialogues of Plato is going around asking people questions about things they're certain about and just continuing to ask questions until they're not so certain anymore. And he does this in a way, it's kind of fun. He does this in a way where he, he plays the fool. 
he says, oh, so you, you know all about this. Tell me more because I really want to know more about it. And he just asks all these questions of the people who, who think they know so much until it comes always to this point that we call Elenchus, where they just say, well, you know what? I guess I really don't know what I'm talking about. And oh, look at the time. I got to go. <laughs> yeah. Don't you love that? That's genius. Well, in the same sense was expressed by Einstein. He said, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. And it's pretty much whole cloth adopted from Socrates when he said, I know that I know nothing. But it's the same idea. And, and notice the, the source of these quotes. Socrates, Einstein. You know, if they can say something like that, we ought to be humble enough to be able to say the same. Yeah, you know, I'm no Socrates or Einstein, but I've, I have, as I said earlier, I've put a lot of time into and continue to put a lot of time into learning and knowing. And I'm 51 now, and I find that I don't know as much as I used to know. I knew a lot when I was 16. Boy, did I know a lot when I was 16. Now that I'm 51, not so much. Isn't that funny how that works? I'm there. So let's, let's uh, bring a couple of these examples back in. We, we started off with a couple examples early on, but here's, here's Joseph Smith. I don't blame anyone for not believing my history. If I had not experienced what I have, I would not have believed it myself. And yet far too often, we're almost dumbfounded when someone says, ah, man, I'm just struggling with this, this church thing or this revelation thing or the scriptures. I'm struggling with it. And yet you've got the example, the archetypal example within our own restorationist movement in Joseph Smith Jr., who, after reading scriptures, realizes he needs to seek further revelation on these things. Was Joseph Smith a doubter? Or did he have doubts? Well, did he have questions? He certainly seems like he had a lot of questions. I'm equating doubt and questions, right? And so it's out of faith that he asks questions. Who's he asking the questions? It's faith in God that brings him to ask these questions. And we have an entire book of scripture, the Doctrine and Covenants, because there were questions. Every revelation that was received that's recorded in that, in that book comes from a question. Without questions, we'd have none of it. Could you say the same for just about every scriptural tradition? You know, when it comes to, for example, uh, Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, he goes off as is his custom to meditate and pray in a cave outside of Mecca. And on one of those occasions, he has an experience of God. He has an experience where he receives a revelation and he's not so sure about this. A lot like in the case of Joseph Smith, he has to go to someone else close to him, relate his experience, and be told by, in the case of Joseph Smith, his father, in the case of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, his wife, Khadija, to tell him, this is of God. It's said that the Prophet Muhammad wanted to kill himself. He was, he was afraid he was possessed by a, a jinn. He wasn't so sure where, where the revelation came from until he was given assurance by Khadija. Joseph Smith went to his father. He says, look, this is what happened. What is this? And his father says, it's of God. Very much the same experience. Love it. What about the Bhagavad Gita? It's a, it's a whole chronicle of questions. It is. It's such a great story, too. Lots and lots of questions. What are, what are your thoughts about the, the Bhagavad Gita before we move on to the Tao? 
oh, it's, it's one person's wrestle with his questions and seeking the light and knowledge from his God. It's an awesome back and forth. I love it. Yeah, when you, when you brought up the, the Einstein quote earlier, I thought of Oppenheimer, who spent a lot of time reading the Bhagavad Gita himself. He actually learned Sanskrit because of the, the beauty of that book of scripture, which is one of my favorites too. And it's actually even tempting me to learn Sanskrit. And when he saw, when Oppenheimer saw the, the test of the nuclear bomb, he actually quoted in his own translation from his memory from the Sanskrit, he gave an English translation, I am become death. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's straight out of the Bhagavad Gita. That's a scientist. And then there's the Tao Te Ching. Yeah, and the Tao Te Ching is very much the same thing. It's an investigation. Uh, it's, it's a series of questions and understandings arrived at through the process of exploring doubt. And especially when it comes to the Tao, the uh, Jing, and Zen thought, there's always this exploration of these seeming contradictions. You know, like the, the, the Zen koans, that you have these contradictory ideas that make you think, right? So that, and the, the point is to question your understanding of reality as complete. It's like, I've got this. I've got it all figured out. Really? Try this Zen koan. And with Zen, there's even this further understanding that all the questioning in the world won't lead to the answer. And at some point in your limited mortal understanding, you have to be okay with contradiction and just understand that that's part of the universe. And maybe it's the fundamental, most important part of the universe is that it, it exists in a dichotomy. Yeah, or looked at another way that there are no parts to the universe, that it's all one, right? So we go back to the idea of the fall, and you're in this dualism, and I think this is something that the Tao Te Ching is pushing up against, is this idea that there is a separateness, that maybe that's not true, that maybe on the other side of that, uh, of that wall, in the walled garden of paradise, there is no separateness. We're all one. As Jesus said, the Father and I are one. So that's a natural end point that a lot of people arrive at when they do enough investigation over a long period of time. Eventually, they just reconcile the contradictions in their mind into that idea of unity. Yeah, it really is. You know, it's something that I've become more and more comfortable with myself. I remember thinking, no, this is, there's a contradiction here. It's got to be one or the other. And, and I just wrestled with that and and I finally surrendered to, I've surrendered to, to a lot of these seeming contradictions. And I found that it's okay. I'm okay. I haven't died. Nobody else has died. I think we'll be okay. Even if we don't have all the answers, even if the seeming contradictions are there, there's always a higher understanding possible. I continue seeking in doubt, meaning with questions, in faith. So knowing that these seemingly more advanced intellects than us have arrived at a point where they have just decided to reconcile the contradictions into unity and admit that no amount of knowledge gives them full understanding, should we just skip all the steps and just go straight to that? I don't know. You know, 
sometimes, so for me, for example, I'm the kind of person that has to learn from his own mistakes. It would be a lot wiser for me to learn from others' mistakes. And I love reading biography. I certainly have access to biographies and I read them and I could learn. And I maybe I have learned some lessons in that way, but I've learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And there's this idea that we've brought up before from Carl Jung, the the psychologist, Carl Jung, who says, beware of unearned knowledge. Can we just take that answer from, let's say, from the Tao Te Ching or from someone else and adopt it as our answer when we haven't really done the work? I think we have to ask the questions. I think we have to wrestle with the, or to wrestle with God. And we might even get a broken rib, but we've got to do the work. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I mean, I, I think that Jacob is Jacob because he wrestles before God. Yeah. So the part of be- becoming our highest manifestation of ourself and approaching our divine potential is going through the wrestle. That's the point of life. I love this part in the Book of Mormon where um, I believe it's Nephi, and I can't remember the exact point, but he's basically saying we obey the law, but we look forward to the Messiah. It's almost like um, he's acknowledging that we don't have it all. And yet the part that he has at the moment is all that he has. And so, okay, abide abide with what we've got now, but keep on questioning, keep on pushing, keep on trying to learn more. And have in view somewhere out there in the infinities that eventually all this stuff blends into one and is God. Something, and I don't want to make that too esoteric, but essentially that there is going to be a reconciliation at some point. So be patient, but investigate, like keep going. So how do we, how do we make this practical for people, Christopher? What does this look like? Yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind is, first of all, if you're having doubts, if you have questions, it's okay. Just know that it's okay. Look, first of all, it's nor- it's it's normal for human beings to be to have doubts, to have questions, to be curious. Right? This is the beginning of uh, Aristotle's metaphysics from what is it, twenty five hundred plus years ago. All humans by nature have the desire to know. You're human. You have the desire to know, and that's why when someone gives you an answer, let's say you're a child, your parents give you an answer. That's helpful, and 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 you can go far with that, but maybe you can't go all the way. At some point, you want to know more, or you want to know for yourself. You want to own that knowledge more. And so you have to do the work. You have to do the work to ask the questions. And so if you have questions, congratulations, you're human. Well, and we ought to be excited by the fact that those questions start to arise within us, because I think it tells us very clearly, you're ready for some transformation, some movement to another level. Questions welling up within us should get us excited. Do they, do they excite you? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I, and I've been through this a few times, right? So if I have doubts, if I have questions uh, pertaining to my beliefs, and by the way, this is something I wanted to be sure to include, and this is probably the best time to mention it. 
anywhere you see belief in the scriptures, let's say I'm thinking of the Bible, if you see the word belief, it's probably been translated from a word that could be better translated as trust. So if it says believe, it's trust. So in my trusting, and so let me, let me just explain why, why I bring that up. It's not about having the right beliefs. I have all the right beliefs, now I can be saved. Well, being saved isn't about having beliefs. Being saved is about having a personal transformation. It's about becoming aware of who you are. It's about a realization of who and what you are, of your divine nature. So just having beliefs, meaning I have information, I know the right answer, quote unquote, isn't going to do it for you. So for me, it's really exciting to have any kind of question about whatever it was that I was taking as a belief, as some kind of dogma coming from the Greek, meaning a teaching, right? So I have this teaching and it's, it may be a true teaching, but what does it mean? What does it mean to me? And how do I, as you asked in, in this case, how do I make it practical? How do I put this into practice? And so I have to have questions. I have to have those kind of questions and I have to be able to move from accepting a point of doctrine to applying it. And that's going to mean that I have to move from, from knowledge to some kind of faith to movement, which is a principle of action, right? That's another way of thinking about faith. Faith is a principle of action. Now we know that for, uh, from, from revelation, from section 29 of doctrine and covenants, that for the Lord, all things are spiritual. And so I'm going to give a secular definition, and that's in a secular and scare quotes definition of faith, and yet it's not secular. It's spiritual, right? But it's not a religious definition, perhaps. This is coming from a philosopher. Faith is acting in the present for the sake of an envisioned future. It's faith that moves me to act such that I will realize whatever it is that I envision for myself whether it be I'm going to turn the faucet to get, because I envision that water will come out. Now, I don't know that water is going to come out. I do have experience that usually when I you know, open up the faucet, water comes out. But what if there's been a terrorist attack? What if there's a sudden drought or somebody forgot to pay the water bill or someone turned off the main to do some work? I don't actually know with a capital K that water is going to come out. But I move forward in faith. I act according to the, the vision that I have of having water come out and I turn the faucet, I turn the, the water on. So I have to be able to do this with my, with my beliefs. I have to be able to put them into action. That takes faith. That means doubts. That means questions. Not everything is given. The, the teaching, the doctrine, it tells you maybe what to have questions about and what to put into practice. But the how is something that Again, it's very individualized. There's that too, right? It's very much individualized. I have to ask for myself of God and have my own experience of God and have my own revelation from God to tell me how to apply the doctrine. Does that make sense? It does. And this is a very important point to make, I think, because as individuals, we all have our own um, environmental factors that made us who we are. And so our set of beliefs is very much influenced by our upbringing, our culture, our surroundings and whatnot. And so the things that cause us dissonance, 
the beliefs that cause us dissonance when they come in contact with, you know, historical facts or whatever are going to be different for one person than another. And so how can we know when that dissonance is taking place within us that might lead to doubt and further investigation? There's a there's usually some kind of psychological manifestation of that. We might act out in a certain way, we might withdraw from our community. Um whatever there's going there's going to be some form of acting out on the anxiety that's created by the dissonance of our beliefs being called into question within us and that's different for a lot of different people and we've got to be okay with that we we have to understand that this is normal and we have to be okay with it happening with other people too right the people that we love the people around us and we've got to give people space pushing back isn't helpful especially because we don't understand their perspective necessarily. We're not in their shoes. So the best thing we can do is try to understand that perspective and and maybe possibly offer your own perspective as a, as a means to helping or just simply saying, that's got to be tough. I understand. But sounds like you need to do some investigation. You need to further pursue this line of questioning to figure out how to reconcile within yourself the things you believe or want to believe with what you've been confronted with. Yeah. And we have to have faith ourselves and in, in that the Lord is going to be with those we love in their doubts because that's the only place that he can be with them. When you're in a place of certainty, when th- that there's no faith in that. Right? There's no faith. Where there's knowledge, there's no faith. And so you can have, and you can have an experience of God that brings you a sure knowledge of God. That that's that's a way of knowing, right? And it's the way that it's the way of knowing that that we are here, usually here talking about, right? Is to have an experience of God, a transformational experience of the divine. Not uh, not a a point, a point of doctrine, not a teaching, an experience. This calls to mind, I want to do one last quote that we discuss, if you don't mind. Another Joseph Smith quote. This comes, and maybe it's not a Joseph Smith quote, whoever wrote the Lectures of Faith, which primarily could have been Oliver Cowdery or whomever, right? It's Joseph Smith approved. It's Joseph Smith approved. I like that. <laughs> so let's, let's quote this from the Lectures on Faith and, and discuss it a little bit. It says, where doubt and uncertainty are there, faith is not, nor can it be. For doubt and faith do not exist in the same person at the same time. That person's, it says that person's, it probably means those persons, whose minds are under doubts and fears cannot have unshaken confidence. And where unshaken confidence is not, the faith is weak. Boy. I'm curious to see where you're going to go with this one. I have to admit, I remember this quote from a cursory look at your notes, you know, going into this. Uh, session recording with you I don't remember it I don't remember I don't remember I didn't read the whole quote carefully it really seems like it challenges what we've been saying here doesn't it doesn't it it, it does that's why I want to I, investigate trusting, it further yeah I'm trusting yeah. <laughs> you've done some homework on this uh, the first thing that comes well, to my mind <laughs> okay I, I'd probably get out an 1828 dictionary and look at these terms that, that yeah. That's one approach, at least. What did you do? How did you reconcile these ideas that we've been discussing with that quote from the Lectures on Faith? 
Yeah. So to a certain extent, we've talked about this a little bit. Because we, we've already said, you've said that Joseph Smith was someone who had doubts, who had questions. And I've said that that's how we got all of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's how we got the Restoration. Started with questions. Yeah. So for me, I mean, first of all, let's let's recognize that there's got to be some some truth in this, even from just a very cursory, shallow reading. And, and that can start with this part, this phrase that says, persons whose minds are under doubts and fears cannot have unshaken confidence. I mean, isn't that part obvious? Sure. Sure. And, and like the, the quote from President Uchtdorf, if we take sort of a, a man on the street perspective and, and a, you know, the, if we apply the terms in that way, then the things seem pretty obvious on the face of it, and there's not a lot of nuance, perhaps. But what we've done here is we've gone into these quotes a little bit, and as we did with Uchtdorf, we'll now do with this quote, right? And see if we can find the nuance in this quote, right? So where I started with it was at the end. And this idea of unshaken confidence, for me, my immediate reaction was to see unshaken confidence as some sort of synonym for certainty, certain knowledge. That's what it sounds like on the face of it, yeah. And I think that that's the shallow reading. On first blush, that's what it sounds like. It does, yeah. But I think that's shallow. I, 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 as I thought about it more, unshaken confidence, what, what are some things that 100% would be beneficial to have unshaken confidence in? Well, you know, in? I think for when you think about all your beliefs, right, and, and especially if you think of them in terms of beliefs, in terms of the way that we get the word that I'm saying might be better translated as trust, translated as belief. If I take all these beliefs as beliefs, as principles of, I shouldn't say principles, as, as dogmas, right? Then I'm not sure that they're going to be helpful. In, 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 in other words, I think this, my answer to your question is if, give me just a minute. <laughs> what am I trying to say, Riley? Um, well, I, I I have your notes in mind too, and I don't want to just take it's and tough. steal it's your notes, easy. right? I think it's much more helpful to have trust and to have certainty in the idea that you can trust in the Lord, which is how I'm saying it would be better to read the scriptures where they say believe, trust. You can have, I have 100% certainty that I can trust in God. That's where I'm certain. That God won't deceive. That's right. I know that my understanding of of doctrines will change or can change. Yeah. And I know that underneath it all is a God I can trust. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, and it, it contrasts well with the opposite of that, which would be the father of lies. That the opposite of a, a trust of trust in God and a God that is trustworthy. The opposite of that, the polar opposite, would be the father of lies, Satan. In whom one cannot trust, right? Right. So I, I guess I approached it from the end rather than the beginning to try to come up with a better understanding or some context to what it would mean to have unshaken confidence. To have unshaken confidence in everything is to put yourself in a very 
stunted position that you can't grow from. That's the fundamentalist position, right? Well, and it's going to be hard to do because there are going to be contradictions, at least seeming contradictions. Seeming and just blatantly obvious contradictions. Sure. But there is something at the core, as I've pointed to, right, that we can trust. And that is the author of, well, and that is God. Yeah. So that's where I arrived is in this idea of what can I have unshaken confidence in? It's not in man. It's not in institutions. It's not in doctrines or dogmas. To have unshaken confidence in those things, if any of them were to change or go a different direction, that could really throw me for a massive loop. It could and shake it might, confidence. It could totally shake my unshaken confidence. <laughs> right. And so where can I place that unshaken confidence with any amount of trust and confidence? And for me, that I arrived at the same place you did, which is in God. His ability to reveal answers and bring, and, and this is somewhat, uh, you know, a tested and tried method for so many people is that if, if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it shall be opened. It's almost perfectly aligned with the first principle of the gospel. You know, it's interesting. It occurs to me that there are two thinkers in the history, two great thinkers in the history of thought that used methodological doubt and arrived at the same answer that, uh, at which we've arrived independently here. Not that we haven't read one or both of them. I, I know I've read both of them, and I think you've read at least one of them. And they are Al-Ghazali, who died in 1111, and Descartes, with whom we, we say the modern period of philosophy begins in the 1500s. And so earlier, earlier Al-Ghazali and later Descartes went through this methodological doubt, questioning all sources of knowledge, and arrived at certainty in God, if nothing else. So he becomes the anchor. He becomes that, that one thing that is that one nail that's driven into the, the sand, and, and you can anchor from that. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you actually now say, well, let's define this thing that we're calling God, that is, that is the thing that we can have certainty in, that's a trap. Because now, once we start to define God, then we may get into some things that we can't actually be certain about. But we can be certain in that thing that we've experienced, that we know is God, that is beyond words, that is ineffable. And if we hadn't experienced that ourselves, we wouldn't believe it either. Just like Joseph Smith. So let's go through that exercise of, rather than defining God, undefining God. And saying, what, what, can, we, what can we learn from that, that sort of exercise of undefining God? Well, first of all, we know that if we, if we don't spend too much time ruminating on perhaps the physical characteristics we allow for a God who is maybe bigger than his physical body occupies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we have, as a, as a church, as a, in the restored church, much has been made of God's body and how much space and time God occupies and, and whatnot. And I, I personally found comfort in that. You know, I remember coming from a, a Lutheran background, and, and you have a Catholic background, 
where you think, oh, this is much more concrete. I can really wrap my brain around this. And I was a child, by the way, and that really worked for me. Now I think, I'm not sure that God actually fits in this box. You know what I mean? Whether or not God has a body, the the idea of, of just thinking of that and that alone kind of constrains him in, in many ways and doesn't really match up with my experience of God. So I don't really want to make any claims one way or the other. And I certainly, I certainly don't want to claim that I know God and God's characteristics in that way. What I do know is my experience of God. And my experience of God doesn't negate that, but it also transcends that. God is certainly imminent in every way, in every sense in my life. He's present as long as I allow him to be. And yet he's wholly transcendent at the same time and doesn't really fit in any space. Does that make sense? It does, and there's subtle nuance to that that I really want to highlight. By And you said the same thing. By undefining God, we're not trying to define him. We're not trying to say he is not something. Because that's that's a contradiction. To say something is not something is the same as saying he is something. True enough. So yeah, I just, don't want to say that. Right. So just staying out of that argument altogether of who, what, he is, how he works, all those things. Let's just stay out of that argument. And I loved what you did. You drew us into the experience of God. That's something that's really a little bit more objective for the individual anyway. Like we can know what our experience is. Yeah. What's your experience? The experience of God is for me. Okay. It's feeling peace when I'm in some sort of desperation. I have felt peace when I approached God in desperation. That's an experience. It didn't tell me anything about his body parts, passions, characteristics. All I knew was that I felt God in desperation. That was a feeling and experience that I had, and I take that as objective. I felt God when I've walked through forests of trees and in nature and smelled his creation and heard his creation, touched his creation, seen his creation. Those are experiences that I've experienced in a sensory way and interpreted within myself as God. It's his creation. I love that. That's interesting that you showed us how you can experience God in experiencing God's creation, that you may not be able to see, hear, taste, touch, smell God, but that you can see her t- smell, taste, touch his creation, and therefore through that creation know the creator. And that's been my experience too. And I don't want to downplay the first vision and the accounts that go with There's eight accounts of the first vision for one. And the first account mentions nothing about you know, God's body or, or anything like that. The, th- the part that's remembered most about the first first vision account is that Joseph's sins were forgiven. That was an experience, something he felt. His sins were forgiven. The weight was lifted. That's an objective experience for Joseph Smith, something he recorded in the very first recording of the first vision. And as he came to understand various aspects of God through his spiritual investigation, perhaps his questions, perhaps his doubts, he may have came, come to further understanding about you know, what composes God, what he 
how he appears to us, how he works through us. And that's all great. But it really began with an experience of God. The first vision was a first experience. Yeah. Yeah, what is, what is uh, our experience of God? Are we experiencing God? Are we trusting in him? Is he revealing himself to us? Are we experiencing that? And are we allowing ourselves to maybe doubt? And, and when I say, I was going to say doubt our beliefs, uh, just as, just as uh, President Uturf has said to doubt our doubts, I'm saying we should also doubt our beliefs. But what I mean by that is that we should doubt the certainty that we hold in those beliefs being interpreted correctly by us to the degree that we allow God himself to enter into our own experience and reveal himself to us. I'm trying to tread lightly here, but this is an invitation to experience God. And I think that can be so powerful. I know it can because I've, I've experienced it. And it's not something that you can learn in a Sunday school lesson. It's not something that you can read in a book. It's the presence of God in your own experience. And there's no way you can pin that down and write about it or talk about it in any way. I mean, you can talk around it. We've done that here. But you cannot actually say what it is. And so it's not in the in the doctrine. It's not in the words. And ultimately, that's not the place of the church. The place of the church is not to define your experience of God. You know, the, the church is built around giving us structure. It's that scaffolding that we've mentioned in previous episodes that gives us some sort of a template to experience God within, a way to do it. It's one way of many. But the church is not here to define your experience of God. Prophets are not here to define your experience of God. The burning in the bosom that some people feel, others may never feel that. And what a shame if they think that's the only way they can experience God. So the church is not here to define that for you. The experience is is there to be had. And it's individualized, it's customized just for you as a special child of God. And how can you know it's for you? Because you'll experience it, and you'll know. Well, there's a story I could tell, Riley. I'll tell this story that comes from, from a dream I had that I think illustrates this point of this highly individualized experience, right? Because I have this dream, and in this dream are three prostitutes. Now, I don't I was going to say I don't frequent prostitutes. I don't, is there, is, isn't there a word that, that doesn't need frequency that I don't, I've never <laughs> visited going, prostitutes, right? Yeah. I don't visit prostitutes and I have this dream with three prostitutes and I think to myself and actually I didn't say it out loud, but I wrote it in my journal, in my journal in the morning. I said, what does this mean? And right when I hit the question mark, then comes an answer. And God says to me, do you remember the three graces? And I think, yeah, I, yeah, I remember the three graces. What's that got to do? They're not prostitutes. Do you remember Abby Warburg's interpretation of them? This is going to be, Abby Warburg was the father of iconography. It's going to be a highly nuanced interpretation. And uh, I had cursorily read an article of, of Warburg's interpretation of the three graces. And this is from the painting of 
of um, Botticelli, Sandro Botticelli of the Primavera, it's called. And so I say, yeah, yeah, I remember that. He says, go read it. Because I hadn't really read it. I just, I only cursely read it. And so I go, I read it and I find an interpretation that actually fits the context of the rest of my dream that has nothing to do with prostitution whatsoever. And it makes sense. And I just don't think, I just don't know that God is going to tell other people to read Abby Warburg, right? It's like, why would it, that only works for me because I was already reading Abby Warburg. Do you see I why I'm now. telling the story? <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's highly individualized. It's not about prostitutes. It's about scholarship. It was actually about scholarship. And then that doesn't even matter because it's nothing to you, right? It's nothing to, to the listener. It's nothing to you, Riley. It was for me. And God spoke to me in that way. And it was really helpful. It was timely. It answered the question that I had, that I didn't even know I had. There, that's something, right? To, to answer the question that you don't even know you had. And, and by the way, when it, comes to, when it comes to Revelation, there's always the question that we should have at least. What brought about this Revelation? That's an important question whether it's a revelation to ourselves or a revelation that we read in scripture, what, because the revelation does come from questions. So what was the question that brought about the revelation? That's an important mm -hmm. question to ask. Another thing I wanted to say, Riley, you know, for those who might doubt that their experience of God is an experience of God and that might fear they're being deceived. Again, there's that core that you can trust your experience of God is something you can trust. Even if you were having doubts, you know, think of the prophet Muhammad again. He thinks he's possessed by an evil jinn. Well, first of all, he wasn't, right? This was something that he comes to understand was an experience of the divine. It wasn't a thing of evil. It was, it was, a, it was a thing of beauty, right? So it's a, it's a thing of, of truth, of beauty, and of goodness. And... We have to be able to trust that God wants to reveal himself to us. We have to open ourselves up to the experience and we have to trust that he is able to reveal himself to us and that he's able to overcome any evil or any, anything at all that could get in the way of that experience. Nothing is going to come between us and God, as long as we're open. If we're open, if we just knock, he's going to answer. If we start walking to him, in my experience, he's going to come running to us. We can trust in that. Well, as we come to the end of this, I just have, I guess, one more thought. And that's the, the vehicle for strengthening our faith via the experiences we will have, if we ask, is doubt. And it's, it sounds contradictory. It might make no sense in our limited understanding of what doubt is, but questions and doubt can lead us to a higher level of understanding. They are the vehicle by which our faith is strengthened. And so I think they go hand in hand. And I hope that our listeners who have been following us through this discussion might approach their disheartening doubts with a new perspective of 
faith that this is going to take me to a place that is that will help me grow transcend and and come closer to God in the end so I hope they they approach it and they say gosh I'm excited now and this has some real growth in store for me I'm, I'm excited about that amen and amen well this has been a fun discussion Christopher I look forward to investigating it further and and to the whole process and utility of doubt. I, I think that we've opened up some avenues for understanding doubt in a new way, and I hope it's been helpful for our listeners. So for now, we'll sign off, and uh, we'll, we'll discuss this further as we uh, continue this journey of contemplation. I'm sure it'll come up again. Well, thanks, Christopher. For, the, for uh, Latter-day Contemplation, I am Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. We hope you have a great week.